All right, well, good afternoon. Go ahead and grab the handout there in the middle. Apparently, we are on Pentecostal level volume tonight, so this should be fun. We'll see what happens. We are uh, on our fifth installment so far of the experience of God. When life becomes life abundantly, and so we're talking about uh, what that looks like as far as context of how we um, live out, how we flesh out uh, the Christian life. And so we're talking about a very, 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 very common topic tonight, Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to gather some usefulness from this and that God will use it to uh, challenge us in a new way tonight. So let's pray as we get started tonight, and then we'll jump into part five. God, we bow before you tonight, Lord, and uh, God, our context of truth and reality and our experience of everything in between is only because of you. Uh, God, left to our own devices and opinions, God, we're going to build things that benefit us. We're going to do things that benefit us, and uh, we're going to contextualize everything simply based upon our area. But God, you see everything. God, you know everything and your knowledge is perfect. And so, Lord, tonight, would you help us to see a very common topic the way that you see it? God, would you help us to understand it the way that you intend for us to understand it? And God, would you help us to live it the way that you intended for us to live? Lord, we pray tonight for eyes to see what you'd have for us to see and ears to hear for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so yeah, here we are on number five. So we've talked about a few different things as far as the experience of God and the things that God intends for us to experience in our walk with Him. And so tonight, we're talking about love, right? That seems normal that you would come to church and hear about love. Well, it's not Valentine's Day, so we will not be talking about uh, Valentine's love. And so as we think about love, I want you to think about a couple of different things as we begin our study tonight. Uh, On May the 8th, 1993, many of you may remember, it may actually be your favorite song, I don't know, but the band Hathaway released a single called What Is Love? Anybody remember that song? Yeah. And then it became a famous, you know, parody song, right? And so, uh, yeah, the famous... And so here's this one-hit wonder song, right? This is, they, I think they had a few other songs, but they bring this group in. And so I went back and started reading a little bit about this group. And so they bring this group in and they sing this song and, they, and it becomes a very popular song. And it, it actually didn't originate here. It originated, I believe, overseas. And then it you know, came over here and went you know, really across the globe. And you think about that song. And so it's the question, what is love? And so many people resonated with that song. Right. And now, you know, it's got a catchy beat and you've probably heard it before. But at the core of that song is the question, what is love? Right. And every one of us, if we were just to say, hey, you know, open mic, what do you think love is? Everybody'd have some definition. You'd have some version of what you think that is. And the reason is, is because humanity has been attempting to answer the question, what is love from the very beginning? It's because we think that we have a concept of what we think love is. When I told you you know, I hesitate to say it right up front, but when I tell you, hey, we're talking about love tonight, and you're like, oh, man, I don't even have to pay attention. I got this down pat, right? I know how to love, I know how to love other people. Um, 
But, you know, so we get this version in our, in our mind. So in the lyrics of the song, the song asks the question, what is love? And then if you remember the song, then he says, don't hurt me. So that's the version of love that we have, right? Is that love would be painful, that love would hurt us and that it would be offensive. Now, in some parts of that, it is true, right? Love, and we'll get to it later on, can be painful. So clearly humanity's concept of love is skewed. So as we think about the English language, and I'm sure you've heard this many, many times, it doesn't capture the total essence of the word love, right? And we read it in Greek, you know, there's a couple of different versions of the word love. Uh, but even in how we use love, you know, again, you know, at the beginning, some of this stuff you've heard probably many times, but we use the word love very flippantly. You know, we, we love our spouse and we love pizza and baseball and God. And, you know, and so all these things are bundled into. the. And so if somebody from the outside, you know, never heard the word love and they say, wait a minute, how is it that you can love God, but you can also love pizza? How are those two things the same? Now, I would suggest that maybe for a lot of people, those two things are the same, but that's not the way that God intended that to be. You see, by the way that God loves us versus the way that we love is absolutely not the same. Now, we don't have, the only context we have for the way that God loves is what we read in Scripture and what we've experienced in our own lives, right? And then we, we functionalize that, if you will, and how we love other people. But I want you to think about it this way. Love as God intended for it to be is universal. Think about this for just a second. Love is the way that God intended for it to be. It is universal. It is the same for everyone and for everything. Think about it for a second. The Bible says that for God so loved the world, right? He didn't say for God so loved Americans, he did this. And for God so loved Europeans, he did this. It says for God so loved the world. Now we contextualize it in our own experiences and we say that God loves certain people or God loves certain things different or God, right? And we say, well, God, and I went to a church one time and I was preaching and they sang a song before I preached. Word for word, the song says, the more that we do, the more God loves us. Word for word. All right. And so what we've done is we've said, well, here's what I think God's love is. And we've communicated it in our own circling context to other people the way that we want it to be or understand it to be. And that's where our damage comes from. That's where our damage comes from. Because God's love is universal. Think about this way. God's love for missions is not personal. Right? God's love for missions is what? It is kingdom focused. It is that none would perish. And so when, when we, we, we see, of course, we, obviously God is willing that none would perish. And so God's love for missions is not God's individual love for one specific group of people that he loves more than anyone else. Right? It's because God loves for people to be saved. I think about that and I think about scriptures that say that the heavens roar when someone, when a sinner repents. Right? And so I think about how God loves for people to be saved. And it can be anyone. It's universal. How about this? God's love for truth is universal. Have you ever met anyone who says, ah, I really don't love truth. I love it when people lie to me. No, of course not. And it's the same with God. God's, God loves truth, right? God loves obedience. God loves truth. And so we communicate our love preferentially, Right? We say, well, I prefer pizza in our example here. Or, you know, I prefer this, that, baseball or whatever. 
And most of the time, it is very self-serving. Now, that not necessarily negative connotation, but just being honest. Right? So our love is based on our preference of what serves me best. You know, when people think about marriage and spouses, are we compatible? You know, so on and so forth. What fits me best, right? That's, that's how often we communicate that. But God's command is that we love one another. You've heard that many times again. But think about that even. It is not personal, right? It is universal or relational. And so what God is saying is that we should love everyone, that we should love one another, that we should love based on not what we get or what they give to us, but based upon the fact that we're commanded to do it, which leads us back to truth, right? And so as we get started tonight, as we're thinking about love, I want you to think about this. As we think about this command that God has given us, And we think about love. Well, love for you and me is the safest place that we can exist. It is to be loved is the yearning of every heart, whether it's conscious or subconscious. Everybody wants to be loved. And it's the safest place to exist because if you know that I love you, there's no danger that you can do anything to damage that. And so you don't live in fear of doing something to mess up our relationship. Right. If you know that I love you and that's why uh, the love of God is so scandalous to humanity is because God loves us not based on performance. And we think that we can damage God's love because of something that we do. And so it becomes very scandalous to us and often not even understood. And so but if you really understand, you know, Pastor Tony talks a lot about identity. If you really understand your identity and your identity, part of that is the reality that God loves you no matter what. Then what do you feel? You feel safe in the arms of God and that you feel that nothing can happen to you that is beyond his control. Right. You're safe. You feel that way. That's what God's love does for us. So as we think about this love and, you know, I've I've given you a bunch of polarizing different thoughts to kind of get you to zero in on the fact that we have love in so many different ways. But the reality is that we really desire the love that God intends for us to have, even if we don't yearn for that. It's the internal desire of your heart is to be loved and to love. You see, in in Ephesians chapter 3, 17, it says... Uh, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And look at this in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Right? That this love of Christ, it surpasses our knowledge. So as I mentioned earlier, subconscious or conscious, our desire is to be loved so that we can be safe, right? That's our desire. And that love exists and that love is so available by God for us, but yet it is for us far beyond something that we can really comprehend. You see, the way that we are loved by God, the reality that nothing can separate us from the love of God is a very difficult concept to grasp because love in our culture is very conditional. I can offend you. You can offend me. Right. And so we tie action to love. And for most people that creates this misunderstanding, especially when believers are involved, 
to say, well, if God is love and God loves me unconditionally and God's love resides in the believer, then why is the believer acting not in God's love? You see, we often, for us, we define love based on our admiration for what we gain. You know, so I love pizza, let's say. And so, well, what do I gain from that? Well, I gain, uh, I got my way because that's what I wanted. Number two, my taste buds are happy. You know, I'm not going to be happy later on, but hey, right in the moment, it's just like eating McDonald's. In the moment, it's amazing, but later on, you regret what you did. But it's based on what we gain, right? So we say, well, love in our culture is, well, what do I get from this? What do I obtain from this? But you see, this is not the love that Jesus exhibited. The love that Jesus exhibited was a love that he gave to us that transforms us so that it would go from us. Right? The love of God that he gives to us is intended to be the transforming power to give his love from us. And so again, back to my example earlier, that as believers, if God's love is unconditional and God loves me and I'm a believer, then I should be communicating the unconditional love from God because I've received it from God. And so as we think about our culture today, well, that's not what we see, unfortunately. Look, I'm going to be honest with you, all right? I've had more hurtful things said to me inside the church than outside the church. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, I've had things said, you know, I'm not going to beat a dead horse, but, you know, when you, we shouldn't act that way. All right? So I work in the corporate world. Corporate people often treat each other better sometimes than in the church world. That's not the way things ought to be. And so when we think about the love that God has for us, we say, well, how how is that communicated to me? Well, it was communicated through Jesus, which we'll talk about in a a few minutes. And so then I should communicate that to others. That's the way, that's the barometer, that's the measure, that's the standard by which I should love other people. Because you see, our love for one another is what validates the gospel message in our lives. If I say that I love God, but I don't love you like God loves me. There's a disconnect somewhere. Wouldn't you agree with that? There's a disconnect somewhere. And so what we have to say is, what has God communicated to me in love? How has God, how has God <coughs> shed his love abroad on my heart? And then as a result of that, how should I respond? Now, we all know the answers to those questions. But our love is what validates that. It's what validates The gospel message in our own life. This is what Jesus said. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That we would love one another. That we would show love for one another. That that love would be godly love. That it would be love that has been communicated to us from God so that, again, we would communicate it to others. You see, Francis Schaeffer put it this way. He said, if we do not show love to one another... The world has a right to question whether Christianity is true. Now, it's, now, we can have this conversation in here, right? We can talk about this. And so if that is true, it's what validates. So the challenge for us as believers... Now, look, I'm, I'm not sitting up here telling you that I'm innocent and that, you know, all the time and that I, I never say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. I'm a sinner just like everybody else. 
But what I am saying is that the way that we communicate our love to the world and the way that we communicate our love to one another is what validates what God has done in our hearts. Like there ought to be a moment in our hearts that where God came in and he began to transform us. And in that sanctification process, we're still going to make mistakes But we are still moving towards sanctification, right? That God is still moving us towards godliness, towards righteousness, towards holiness. And what that means is that we learn to love each other the way that God intends for us to do that. Now we're going to get to, you're going to say, well, all right, what does that look like? We're going to get to that. But that's how we ought to act. You see, the Pharisees taught that one should love those that are near and dear to them. But Israel's enemies should be hated. And so that's how the Pharisees communicated love. They said if someone does something for you or if it benefits you or they're close to you, you should love them. If they are an enemy of Israel, they're an enemy of God. And so what we should do is communicate hate to them in order to show them that God hates them. Now, in fact, that's not what Scripture teaches, but that's what the Pharisees taught. And so they implied that their hatred was God's means of judging their enemies. And I would say it's sometimes in our world today, that's how people treat their love, right? As God's judgment. Well, I'm going to withhold love from you because you didn't do what I wanted or you didn't do, you said what I didn't, or whatever. I'm going to withhold that from you. Now, when has God withheld his love from you? The answer is never, of course, right? And so this is what we see most often in our world is that we love only when we benefit. Only when we benefit. You see, our only context for what love is, well, it comes from our understanding of who God is. Now, as we talk about tonight, the fact that God himself said that God is love. So, you know, Scripture teaches that. We know that that God is love. And so as we think about the context for love, well, it comes from that understanding. So if I believe that God is a hard God and that God will only love me based on performance and I've got to do good things to please God or I've got to you know, work to earn God's love or whatever that may be. If I believe that, I'm going to communicate that to other people because if I receive it this way, I'm going to give it that way. And so what's happened for us, and unfortunately because of sin, is as we grow up and we understand or we experience or we don't experience love, you know, either or the lack thereof, That's our definition. And so we begin to communicate that and we exude that type of love based on that. The church is full of people who have been saved, who have been redeemed, who were broken previously, that never experienced the type of love that God intended for them to experience. And so what we're doing is we're trying to learn what is God's love look like and together we ought to try to figure that out, right? And a lot of times that happens. I mean, the church is the largest volunteer organization on the planet. So I would say in a lot of ways... We figure that out, right? How to love, how broken people can work together to love each other. And so, but our context comes from our understanding of who God is. And so you have to have a very accurate picture of who God is in order for you to love the way that God intends for you to love. The reason for that is because our first knowledge of love comes from our experience with God. Our first knowledge of love comes from our experience with God. We know that God is love because he told us that he is love. The first time that we're made made aware of this reality is through Moses' experience with the burning bush. The the Bible says in Exodus 34, 6, 
It says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So here's Moses at the burning bush and he is in the presence of God. Remember, God said, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. And so Moses is in this experience of the presence of God. And God passes by, and what God tells him is that God is a God that abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he declares to Moses, and our first knowledge, and Moses' first knowledge, of his experience of God. So he is experiencing the presence of God, and in his experience of the presence of God, what does he experience? He experiences love. He experiences love. You see, you know, our church is heavily involved in foster care. And the standard for foster care is to love children the way God loves children, right? And so when we set that standard up front that we, that we have, you know, we had uh, several foster children come through our home. And so, you know, we had, we established, we learned a lot of things and we established, all right, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to love them. The way that God loves them. We're going to have boundaries just like God has boundaries. We're going to have you know, expectations just like God does. But we're going to love them the way that God loves them. And so we're not going to allow behavior or you know, history or whatever to determine any of that. We're just going to love them the way that God loves them. And see, when, when people, for a lot of foster children, that's the first time that they've ever experienced love that has no strings attached. Right? Because you know, a lot of them go this place to that place. And so they don't understand... Uh, security. They don't understand unconditional love. They don't understand, you know, doing things, you know, for no reason. Why would you do that? You don't even know me, right? And so as we experience that from God, Moses experienced this moment where God walked by and said, I love you because I'm a God that is abounding in steadfast love. The entire Old Testament. Uh, we see the theme throughout every Old Testament prophet declaring God's love. As a matter of fact, Jonah, you know, we went through Jonah here not too long ago. Here's what Jonah says about God. Jonah says, uh, it says that he prayed to the Lord. And he says, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and what? And abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, I know that you're a God that is abounding in steadfast love. So his experience of who God was in that moment was a God who loved even the Ninevites. Right? Because he says, if I go, they're going to repent. And God, you know all the things that they've done, which is the unconditional love of God. And so our experience with God of his love, it shapes or it forms our understanding and our belief of who God is. You see, not only did our knowledge, our first knowledge of love come from our experience, our first example of love came from the Trinity. Our first example of love came from the Trinity. You see, we know that God loves us because he told us he does which is a good reason. But we also know that God loves us because he exists in the Trinity. So you say, well, how does that declare that God loves us? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question. 
You see, this is what Jesus said in John 17, 24. He gives us the answer. Jesus said this, Father, He said, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Because why? Because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Now there's a lot of implications to that scripture right there. You have loved me before the foundation of the world. So you would leave with the question, what was God doing before the earth was formed? Right? What was he doing? Was he bored? Was he sitting there? You know, God is not bound by time and space. And so there was not a moment that he was created. And so was God sitting in time and space saying, man, I got to do something. I got to figure something out because I'm just bored. I need to create something. No, what does Jesus tell us is happening here? He says that God, for sure, one thing that we know God was doing is God was loving. He says, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So how does the Trinity teach us that God loves me? That God is love? Well, because in order to love, what do you have to have? A relationship, right? You have to have a relationship. And so God is in relationship in the Trinity with Jesus, the Son. And so we know that God is love because He exists in the Trinity. Now, if that's not mind-blowing enough for you, think about it this way. All other belief systems, their religions, have singular gods. Go study them. They have singular gods. What does that mean? That means in their belief system, prior to to the foundation or the existence or creation or whatever they communicate of humanity, they were alone. Which means they're not love. Because you can't love just yourself. Right? You have to be in the context of relationships. And so that's why the concept of the Trinity is so important. So as we've said then, this displays the reality That God was never alone. This displays the reality that God was never alone. If you spend enough time thinking about that, that is amazing. You see, true love can only exist in a relationship. It can only exist in a relationship. And so, you know, we say, hey, well, you know, we've... You know, people have said hurtful things or whatever. But guess what? The only way you can experience love is to be in a relationship. So as much as hurt or whatever may come from that, that's the only way. Now, in the Trinity, it's perfect love, right? And it was intended to be perfect from the very beginning. And yet, unfortunately, because of sin, we know the story, right? But it was intended to be that way. But it can only exist in a relationship. Why is that? Because true love has to be given. True love has to be given. That's why you you see oftentimes relationships fail. Because it is, what am I getting? I'm not getting what I need. I'm not receiving the care or the love or whatever that I want or desire or deserve. But that's because you're, you're receiving. True love is that is given. Tim Keller put it this way. He said that God must have created us not to get joy, but to give it. So it's God's joy that he would give us love. 
It's God's joy that he would give us love. Jesus goes on to say in John 17, he says this, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, of course, him and God, the father. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And so here's Jesus declaring the self-giving love of God, that God is giving away himself, that he's giving away his love. And so true love is self-giving. It gives away. It doesn't seek his own, as Pastor Tony preached here on uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13, not too long ago, that it's not puffed up, that it doesn't seek his own. Right. And so true love gives away. And so as we see this love of God, well, then we see this as we. We see that the source of love is God, the father or the father is the source of love. I'm not sure if it's going to come up. So the father is the source of love. So we know that God is love, that we saw that through Moses, that God declares that he is love. We see the existence of love in the Trinity. So God is the source. Number two, the Son is the expression of love. Jesus expressed the love of the Father. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so that's the expression of the love of God. And then number three, the Spirit is the activity of God's love. It's the activity of God's love. And so this activity is what, how we treat each other, how we love one another. That's the activity of the Spirit of God. The activity. So now that we've got some context about what love is, we say, all right, well, what does, what does it look like practically? Okay, well, how do I apply that practically in my life? Well, we'll turn to John 21 to answer that question. John chapter 21, and we'll look at verse 15. We'll begin in verse 15. Now, again, a very common passage that you've read before. Jesus is resurrected, okay? Uh, Peter and the disciples, they're out uh, fishing, and Jesus comes up, and he, uh, he sees them, and he calls to them from shore. And uh, the Bible says that Jesus had made a little breakfast there on the shore, and so he calls out to Peter and them from shore. And the Bible says that Peter tosses his cloak off, he hops in the water, and he swims to Jesus. All right, so Peter gets to Jesus and Peter. Now, remember, Peter, he's standing there in the garden and uh, he's telling Jesus, Jesus, man, I'm never leaving you. I'm with you, Jesus, no matter what happens at the Last Supper. Jesus, I'll die with you. And who is it that's going to betray you, Jesus? Right? This is St. Peter. All right. And so they get to the garden. And when they get to the garden, he says, Jesus, I'll die with you. And so the guards come up and they go to arrest Jesus and Peter whips out a sword and he swipes off the ear of Malchus, right? And so when he swiped his ear off, Jesus reaches down, picks up his ear, puts it back on his head and said, hey, it's all good, right? You know the story. And so this is Peter, the same Peter. Then they arrest Jesus. They carry Jesus away. And as they're carrying Jesus away, the Bible says that Peter, he followed at a distance, which is very telling. And so here's Peter at a distance. Then he, what does he do? He goes to the fire. Hey, don't you know, I don't know Jesus. He denies Jesus three times, right? And so Peter denies Jesus. Then Jesus is crucified. None of the disciples, except for John, are at the crucifixion. 
Right? We know that because Jesus uh, says to John to take care of his mother. And so then Jesus is buried. He's put in the tomb. He, he's risen, right? He raised it. And then the angel's there. And then the angel says what? Go tell Peter and everybody. And so they run off and tell. So uh, what I'm getting at is this. Peter has not seen Jesus yet. Okay? So Peter sees the resurrected Jesus. Jesus on the shore. John chapter 21. Jesus is on the shore. And Peter sees him and he hops off the boat and he's swimming like crazy. Like Michael Phelps fast to get to Jesus. He gets to Jesus and this is what Jesus said. They had food when they finished. Verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now he wasn't talking about the fish, by the way. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now you've read that before, right? I mean, you, you know the story. And here's the problem with that. Is that we have one word in the English language for love. And it's love. And so we're reading this and we say, well, what's so big about this story? That, you know, do, you, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Do you love me? Yeah, okay, well, go, do, go, go feed my sheep. But see, that's, that doesn't grasp the whole concept of what Jesus is saying here. And this really gives us an insight as to what Jesus thinks love is and what God, God's love is for us. Okay, so as Jesus is restoring Peter after his denial, Jesus drilled in to the heart of the matter. And this is most likely the heart of the matter for most people in church. Okay, and if we're not careful, we're going to miss it. So you see here, the first thing that I want you to see is that love requires sacrifice. Love requires sacrifice. Jesus first asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? The word indicated here in the Greek is the word agape, which is sacrificial love. In the Greek language, there's a few words for love. We get uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love, filio love, agape love, a sacrificial love. Those are the two that we'll deal with tonight. You see, this agape love is sacrificial love. And so what Jesus is asking Peter is, Peter, do you agape love me? Do you sacrificially love me? Now, this is Peter. Remember, after all we just talked about, <clears throat> this is Peter who said, I will do anything for you, Jesus. And then at a moment's notice, who's Jesus who? I don't know him. And so Jesus said, Peter, do you sacrificially love me? You see, in the New Testament, the word agape is mentioned 259 times. So it's a big deal to God. So this agape love. He asked Peter, do you agape love me? And, and listen to how Peter responds. Peter says, God, you know that I love you. Jesus, you know I love you. But he doesn't use agape. 
He uses philia, which means brotherly love. So God, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you sacrificially love me? And Peter says, Jesus, you know that I brotherly love you. Right? You know that, I, that we're friends. We're pals, man. We're pals. Right? I think a lot of people love, quote, God, which means they're friends with God. That they call Him when they need to hang out or want something, right? That they, they filio love God. And Jesus is asking Peter, though, he's not, Peter, look, we're looking past filio, right? We're, we're friends. We know each other's name. I'm asking you, do you sacrificially love me? You see, in, in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said this, greater love has no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. He said, if you want to know what love is, like that hit song in 1993, this is what love is. Greater love then this is nothing that you would lay down your life for your friends. Now, it'd be easy if we didn't have the rest of John to say, well, that's easy for him to say. You know, it's easy for me to say, I love you to death if I don't have death as a choice. But he did. Right? This is before the cross. And yet now he's in front of Peter after the cross. And he says, Peter, do you sacrificially love me? I've just told you, Peter, just a few weeks ago that the greatest love was to lay down your life. And I hung on a cross for six hours last Friday because I love you. That's what love is, Peter. That's what sacrificial love is. And yet Peter's response in his humanity was only willing to admit as much as he was capable. Now, I don't know if it was in self-condemnation. I don't know if it was in guilt. I don't know the reason for which Peter responds with a very telling truth that it was just, in fact, brotherly love. You see, our capacity to love is limited to our experience of love. Read that again. Our capacity to love is limited to our experience of love. If you grew up without loving parents, your capacity to love is very limited. If you grew up in a legalistic home, your capacity to love is very limited. You see, our capacity is limited to our experience. And so here's what I would tell you. If that's you, that doesn't mean that you're handicapped for the rest of your life. That's not what that means. You're still alive. The final chapter's not written. So what that, what that tells me, if I'm you and I'm in your boat, what you've got to do is you've got to saturate yourself in the experience of godly love. What you've got to do is you've got to put yourself in community with people who love the way that God loves. You've got, to, you've got to learn how to love other people the way that God loves you from other people that are loving you the way that God loves you. Because if our capacity is only limited to what we've experienced, then that can become an excuse. It can be. It can be a crutch. There's a lot of things you didn't grow up with or I didn't grow up with or whatever. And that doesn't change it by me talking about it. I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm just saying it's already written. And I can't change the past, but I can change the future by what God, I allow God to do in my life in the future, right? 
And so don't allow your experience or the lack thereof to limit your capacity to do what God has called you to do. How can you love someone unconditionally who's damaged you? Because you've been loved unconditionally from someone that you have damaged. You see, Jesus asked Peter a second time. Jesus didn't entertain any of it. He didn't say, wait a minute, brotherly love, hang on. Did you hear what I said? No, he asked a second time. Peter, do you love me? Again, agape. He asked the second time. Peter, do you, agape, love me? And Peter responds the second time the exact same way. Jesus, I brotherly love you. Twice, same thing. Jesus said the same thing. Peter said the same thing. Then we get to the third time. It says, he said to him a third time, verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Brotherly love. Now Jesus changed it. So it's not sacrificial. First two times, do you sacrificially love me? Peter says, I brotherly love you. The third time, Jesus says, Do you brotherly love me? And look what the Bible says. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you brotherly love me? Now, this is Matt's speculation. So take it as you, you will. But it's interesting to me that the third time that that's spoken, that it says that Peter was grieved. Now, I don't know the reason for that. But my assumption is that Peter thought to himself, Jesus just changed what he said. Right? The first two times it was agape. Now it's brotherly. So he's saying, do you even brotherly love me, Peter? And Peter responds. It says that he was grieved. And he says what? Jesus, you know that I brotherly love you. So Jesus received what he said. The third time Jesus asked, do you even brotherly love me and the bible says that peter was grieved you see for for jesus to love peter with agape love he had to look past his actions he had to look past you know what he could have easily said you know what just forget peter never mind but that's not what he said You know, he could have done the same thing to you and me. Did you respond to God the first time he called you? No. Right? And so when God called you and you you didn't follow God or you didn't commit to Jesus or or you didn't didn't, uh, commit to follow Jesus, you know what he could have said? Just forget it. Never mind. But that's not what he did. The Bible says that he pursues. Right? That God pursued you. That he rescued us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That there's none who seeks after God. Not even one. And God pursued us. And God chased after us. And God saved us, right? And even in the midst of that, when Peter's saying, I don't sacrificially love you, Jesus. What does Jesus say? He gives him something to do. He looked past his actions. Because of what? Because of the unconditional love of God. You see, does the way that you love cost you anything? Do you love God to the point that it costs you something? Do you love others to the point to which it costs you something? I mean, there's people in this fellowship that give up their vacation every year to go on mission trips. That costs something. 
Right? There's people who give up their time once a month on Saturdays to go up to the children's village in Wiggins. That costs something. Right? There's so many. There's, I can't name all the things that are done. It costs to serve in the children's ministry. It costs to serve in the nursery. It costs to support different ministries. It costs something. Right? There's, there's untold things that will never be known. I was driving the other day and, and one of our deacons was out at uh, one of our uh, widow's home in her yard, working in her yard. No one will ever know that because it costs something. Real love costs. Does the way that you love cost you anything? Do you give of your time? How about this in the Baptist church? Do you give up your preference? Do you ever do what you don't want to do? You see, everything in our world is broken if we only love with brotherly love. There is no restoration without agape love. Because agape love costs. You know, one of the verses that God's often used in my life is 2 Samuel 24, 24. It says, I want to offer a sacrifice to God if it doesn't cost me something. And God's used that verse in my life a lot. You see, agape love cost. You see, for all of the disciples, it cost their life. Every single disciple died for their faith. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. For most of us, it's unlikely that you will have to sacrifice your life for your faith. But for most people, there is no sacrifice at all for their faith. Which means there's no sacrifice in their relationships. You see, the entry barrier to faith never changed. Have you ever thought about that? You know, everything in our culture changes, right? Today you can do this and tomorrow it'll change and then you can do something else. There's always something new, that, right? There's always these new things. And used to be these requirements that, you know, there were standards. And, you know, now today the standard is whatever you want it to be. And then that's the new standard, right? The entry barrier to faith. Have you noticed how that has changed? Quote, right? It's changed. It has really changed, but culture's changed it. Right? People think that, well, they can create their own version. Of the, they can identify their own belief system. And if they don't like what you, you know, what Scripture says, they'll just change it. Or they just won't believe it. Or they'll ignore it. Or they'll condemn it. As though that changes it. And so the entry barrier in a lot of people's minds to faith has changed. But newsflash, the entry barrier to faith has never changed. People have simply changed their perception of the entry barrier. Right? Jesus says, if any man wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How many people do you know that are doing that? Denying themselves, take up their cross, following Jesus. The entry level, the entry barrier has changed. In a lot of people's minds, that we believe that we can do whatever we want to do, and we can act ever how we want to act, and that God's going to love us unconditionally, because that's just what God is, that God is love. And I can do anything that I want, and it's not going to cost me anything to follow 
Jesus, I'm not going to stand up for my faith. Why would I do that? I'm forever saved. I don't have to do anything. I'm saved forever, right? That's what the world says that salvation is. But we know as believers that, you know, Paul talks about in Romans 6, that we don't take advantage of God's grace, that we don't sin so that grace would abound. No, that's not what the Bible teaches, that we would obey because we love the Father. We don't love the Father uh, because we get something from it. We love the Father because He's first loved us, right? Isn't that what 1 John teaches? And so for us, we think about this entry barrier that there's no cost to doing it. You see, in the New Testament, faith calls family, friends, jobs, and your life for a lot of people. In today's world, most people believe that lip service is sufficient. Think about the rich young ruler. What did he say? Good master, good teacher. You know, he's, hey, Jesus, I think you're awesome, man. And I'm, I'm pretty wealthy and I, I idolize my wealth. And I was thinking it'd be really good if you were part of my portfolio. And Jesus says, hey, if you want me to be a part of your portfolio, I am your portfolio. Right? And what does the Bible say? He walked away empty-handed. You see, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. You see, when the love of Christ controls us, guess what happens? We sacrifice. We give of ourselves. It costs us something. You see, what caught you is what keeps you. What caught you is what keeps you. If you you came to church for a handout, then you're going to stay as long as you get a handout. But when you're not getting what you want, you're not going to stay. Right? That's how it works. Think about it. The restaurants that give you free food, do you keep going back? Of course. But when they stop doing that, do you keep going back? No. Right? And so what caught you is what keeps you. If you follow Jesus because he rescued you, because he redeemed you, because he saved you, because he did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself, guess what? You're going to stay. But if you came to Jesus based on what you can get and how it's going to make your life better and you fill in the blank of what culture says... You're not going to stay. You're not. What caught you is what's going to keep you. You see, if your concept of someone loving you is you always getting your way, well, then you're wrong. That's not what love is. You don't always get your way. If your concept of loving someone is based on how they receive it, you're wrong. That's not what love is. Loving people is hard. It's very hard. It's sacrificially hard. And it is only possible through Christ. Here's what this truth tells us. That the only way that we can sacrificially love God is by the supernatural infusion of His Spirit. The only way I can sacrificially love God is that if the Spirit of God empowers me to do that. Because my flesh will fight me every step of the way to not do that. That I'm going to pursue comfort and pleasure and self-gain every opportunity that I get. The only way I can sacrificially love God is if I surrender to the Spirit of God. That's the only way I can do it.
The only way that we can sacrificially love our neighbor as ourselves is by the supernatural infusion of the Spirit. Listen, it's not normal for you to love someone who is your enemy. You have to have the Spirit of God for that. It's not normal for you to love people who are hard to love. You have to have the supernatural infusion of the Spirit of God for that. Now, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're incapable of doing that. You can't love someone as yourself if you haven't been loved like that. Remember, our capacity is limited to our experience. So you've got to have the Spirit of God inside of you. And you've got to be following the Spirit of God inside of you in order for you to love God sacrificially and to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you ask yourself the question, am I sacrificing in my love? Or am I loving my neighbor as myself? And the answers to those questions, and any of those are no. Number one, you're not saved. Or number two, you're not submitting to the Spirit of God in your life. That's how we love the way that God intends for us to love. So love requires sacrifice. Number two, love involves care. Not only does it require sacrifice, but it involves care. As I talked about earlier, the intention was that we would live in perfect harmony with God in love, right? In the garden, the Bible says they walked, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, the awesome, most awesome verse, one of the most awesome verses in the Bible, right? Think about this perfect harmony that existed in the garden and then sin came, okay? And then in sin, we know what happened. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and then uh, Adam and Eve had kids, all right? And so Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. And guess what happened? They didn't get along. And so in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, of course, God knows where Abel is. Right? Of course. But he's asking Cain, Where is your brother? In other words, what Cain responds is, am I responsible for his care? Am I responsible for loving him enough to know where he's at? Imagine a world, if you will, where we're responsible for each other's care. Imagine that world. That's called the millennium, by the way. It's going to be awesome. That we care, that, that I love you so much that I want to make sure that you're taken care of. Right? The love involves care. And Cain says, hey, I'm, I'm not responsible for his care. Why are you asking me where he's at? Am I responsible enough to love him to know where he's at? And you know what the answer is? Yes! Yes, you are. I'm asking you because you should know. I'm asking you because you should care. That's why I'm asking you. You are your brother's keeper. You see, in three different ways, Jesus commanded Peter in how he should relate to those around him. Jesus told Peter, you should feed the lambs, you should tend the sheep, and you should feed the sheep. Feed the lambs, tend the sheep, feed the sheep. 
Remember, Peter gets all tangled up and I'm not sure if I sacrificially love you, God, but I brotherly love you. And then he's grieved because God says, do you brotherly love me? Or Jesus does. And so then he says, okay, well, here's what you do. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. What God is, what Jesus is telling Peter is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take care of them. You see, people are God's creation. So guess what? We don't get to choose how we treat them. We don't get to choose how we treat them. People are God's creation. Imagine again a world in which that was true. It would be so amazing to go to Walmart, wouldn't it? Or to drive down 49. It would be incredible. Because people would what? They would love each other as their brother's keeper. You see, here's the way that we see it. You know, there's a bunch of neighborhood kids that live in our neighborhood. And if the neighborhood kids come over and the neighborhood kids act up, you know what I have to do? Y'all should probably go home, right? I don't have to get on to those kids. They're not my kids. And so they can do whatever they want to do. Right? That's the joke with grandparents is that I can bring the grandkids over and hype them up on sugar and send them home. Right? They can do whatever they want to do. It's not my responsibility. And that's the world that we live in, right? Is that we would say, well, they're acting up, but they're not my kids. And we would just dismiss it to say, hey, look, they can just go off and do their own thing. Not my business. I'm not going to discipline them. But you know what I've learned in community? Here's what I've learned in community. That the people that are in community with me love my kids like they're their own. And you know what I've been taught and that I've learned in community about other people's kids? That when I'm in community with them, I love their kids as my own. When you're in godly community, that's what happens. That you love their kids like they're your kids. And they love your kids like they're, your kids are their kids. And so instead of saying, hey, you just go on and do your own thing. No. We're all in this together, buddy. I care for you. I care for you. And so I want to love you the way that God loves me. You see, when Jesus said to feed uh, or to tend, what he's doing is he is commanding Peter to nourish those around him. He's telling him to love those people that are around him. In community, love those people that are around you. Love their kids, love their family, love their dysfunction. To love them, to care for them. That's why there's differing levels of maturity. And that the spiritually mature should teach those that are spiritually immature. You know, kids act like kids. Do you know why kids act like kids? Because they're kids. And do you know why spiritually immature people act like spiritually immature people? Because they're immature, right? And that's how that works. And we, we were that way, right? Maybe you're that way now. That you, you just came to know Christ. Or maybe you've not grown. You've not experienced the love of Christ. And so you haven't matured in that area. That you haven't loved the people the way that God has loved you. Because you've never matured in that way. You see, God is commanding Peter to nourish, to love those around him. In other words, here's the question that we would ask ourselves. Do you speak life into the lives of those in your circle? To nourish them, to encourage them, to build them up, to love them. 
Do you want good for them? When you care for somebody, you want good for them. Do you build up those that God has entrusted in your circle? You should. You should do that. You should be their cheerleader. You should encourage them. They should be your cheerleader. They should encourage you. That's what love is. It involves care, that you care for them. When you care for somebody, you cheer them on. You see, in foster care, as I mentioned earlier, just like CPS entrusts the foster parents to care for, to nourish, and to help restore children, so God has entrusted you to care for and to nourish and to help restore those people that are in your circle. So feed them. Feed them. Feed them. Look, if you've, if you've got older kids and you've been through the terrible twos and you know how to handle them, invite younger families over to your house. Don't run from their dysfunction. Just walk into their dysfunction. If you've got young married couples and you see that they're struggling or they're struggling financially, or they're struggling relationally or whatever, step into their mess and say, hey, I've been there. Here's what worked for me. I care enough to help you. Right? So oftentimes we say, hey, I'm over here and I'll help you if you need me. But, well, nobody's asking me to help, so I'm just not going to do anything. Look around. Love someone. Look, if I'm serving in the children's ministry and there's two kids fighting over in the corner, what do I say, well, that's not my kid, so I really don't care. No, of course not. I go over there and say, hey, is this really necessary? Right? And so I step into the situation. If we really care for somebody, what are we going to do? We're going to step into the situation. You see, care is not based on how it is received. We say, oh, well, I'll help them, but nobody's asked me. Well, they may be offended if I give them advice. Really, is that what you tell your kids who are about to put their hand on a hot stove? I would tell them not to do that. It's going to hurt, but I really don't know how they'll receive it. Or how about this? Mom, dad, I want gummy worms for dinner. Well, that's probably a bad idea. But I just, <clears throat> they might get upset if I tell them no. Is that good care? Of course not. I'm not going to take my child to the doctor because they may get a shot and they don't like needles. And so we're just never going to go to the doctor. That's, that's, that's crazy, right? Care is not based on how it is received. You know, when our kids were growing up, they didn't like taking baths. But guess what? They got a bath. That's what they needed. Right? How about this? Sometimes my kids today, they're teenagers, they, they don't like brushing their teeth. But guess what? I don't like big dental bills. And so they're going to brush their teeth. Right? And I say, hey, look, you, you have, if you want to keep your teeth, you got to care for your teeth. Right? And so I say, look, it's not how you're going to receive it. You know, most of the time when you tell children to do something, they don't like it. That doesn't matter to me. Right? I'm the parent. God entrusts me to love you the way that he, he intends for me to love you. And I know what's best for you because I'm your parent. You see, care is not based on how it's received, but it's also based on what is best for that person. Care is based on what is best for that person. Now, here's the kicker right here. I want you to listen. We're almost done. Care is not based on what is best for that person. But guess what? 
I know what you're thinking. You say, I know what's best for them. Right? And you say, I, if, I, if they'll just listen to what I tell them, everything will be fine. That is wrong. That's dangerous. Hang on. I don't get to decide what's best for you. Jesus does. Jesus does. I've got a lot of opinions. I mean, they're like noses. Everybody's got them. Right? I've got a ton of opinions. And I am an expert on my opinion. And you're an expert on your opinion. But guess what? When I care for someone, I need to care for them based on what God wants for them. Not based on what I want for them. I don't get to decide what's best for you. I didn't create you. God created you. I just get to be a part of your life. You see, the Peter that we see in the book of Acts following this encounter is completely different than the Peter that we saw before the uh, crucifixion of Jesus. And so what happened, what this tells us, is that the nourishment that Jesus gave Peter propelled him to be who he was intended to be. So what about the people that are in your circle? The care that God has intended for you to give to them. The love that may cost you, right? It may cost you heartache. It may cost you pain. It may cost you sleep. It may cost you time. Guess what? God intends for you to do that. Right? Because why? Because it's going to propel them to be who God wants them to be. And so as we get here towards the end, we think about this story. You know, this story isn't just about Peter's response to Jesus as much as it is Jesus' response to Peter. I want you to think about the other side real quick. Think about the times that people have turned their back on you. The times that people have betrayed you. The times that people, you know, I said at the beginning that, you know, people in the church have said hurtful words. The time that those things have happened. Think about those times. How did we respond to those moments? You see, Jesus' focus was not on Peter's failure, but Jesus' focus was on the love of the Father. That he sacrificially, he's telling Peter, you should sacrificially love. Peter, you should care for those that are around you. You should nourish them. And it wasn't based on Peter's failures. It was based on the Father's love. And so as we look to our peers, okay? As we see those people that are in our community, in our circle. We see those people that are in our fellowship. And we see those people, people that are in our sphere of influence. Maybe they're not believers. But we see those people in our sphere of influence. Okay? We see those people. We can't care for them. And we can't love them based on their failures from the past. We have to focus on the love of the Father for them. Right? That's hard. That's hard. But if we continue to count wrong against each other, then we're never going to love each other the way God calls us to love, and we're never going to care for each other the way God calls us to care for each other. And so Jesus looked past Peter's failures to the love of his Father. You see, the Father's love, where is it? It is always on his people. The love of the Father is always on his people. And Jesus loved Peter in spite of his failures. Jesus cared for Peter in the depths of his sinfulness. And God restored Peter through love.
And that is exactly what God intends for us to do. That we would be a part of redemptive stories of how God is restoring people. And the way that He's doing it is one at a time through relationship. And remember, you can't love without relationship. So I hope this has been challenging for you tonight as we look at love. This is the way that we experience life the way God intends for us to experience and the way that we experience love. It's not easy. And you can't do it, remember, without the supernatural infusion of the Spirit of God. If you try on your own power, you will fail. And so my prayer for you and my prayer for us is that we would love each other more deeply, that we would care for each other, that we would give of ourselves the way that Jesus gave for us. Not that we would earn anything from doing that, but that we love because Jesus first loved us. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that the end of Peter's story was not his denial, but God, that you restored him and that you restored him through relationship. God, would you help us to love better? God, would you help us to see the opportunities that you put before us and that we would step into those moments, that we would care for those that you've entrusted to us, that we would love them sacrificially, not based on the things that we gain or the things that we prefer, but God, that we would love them based on you. God, that is the common bond that we have. We're not from the same place. We don't do the same things. We don't like the same things. But we're loved by the same God. So Lord, help us to love each other the way that you love us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great night.